All right, we're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And we are back, back with the Mars Magazine podcast. This is Adario Strange here with Vic Song. And we are back for another week of the odd and interesting, by way of science and technology, meet science fiction. Let's just dive right into it. I mean, we have a lot to discuss this episode. So uh, I want to kind of just talk about, you know, this past week we had, okay, I keep getting this mixed up. It's, I can't remember if it's the upfronts or the new upfronts. Regardless, we had uh, a lot of uh, television networks um, and non-traditional networks, what they call OTTs, over-the-top companies announcing new shows. And what I noticed was that there seems to be a trend uh, towards time travel movies or Hmm. movies or shows. And we got two coming out. uh, and One's coming out in what they're calling 2016-17 season and one's coming out in 2017 and that is from abc it's called time after time and it appears to be based on the 1979 film time after time which has hg wells chasing uh jack the ripper into present into the present you know from victorian times and into the present um the original was i think starred roddy mcdowell uh, if you know and love his work, uh, you'll know him from Planet of the Apes. And this appears to be like an attempt to kind of revisit that concept. Uh, that is Victorian time, H.G. Wells traveling into the present. Kind of and funky. It's it. Well, the, the early scenes look kind of steampunky. Mm. But once they get into the present, you know, he kind of does the whole oh, I'm a fish out of water thing. And it looks like that happens for, you know, again, we only saw, we've only seen the trailer at this point, but he seems to do the fish out of water thing very briefly. And then very, very quickly, he transforms into this super hot, you know, CW network style. Uh, They're always very know. pretty on the CW network. Yeah. He becomes a time travel bro. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, uh, TM, TM, I'm registering that. Right, right after this. Yeah. Um, yeah, a time travel bro. So not really excited about that. But the other one, which is from the other time travel show, which is from NBC is called Timeless. That looks a lot better. Um, none of the actors are really super well known. I think you know one of them, right? Yeah. Malcolm Barrett. He was, he played kind of a supporting role on this sitcom, very quirky sitcom called Better Off Ted, in which he played a lab geek. And I don't know, I really liked his character then. So in the trailer, I saw him and I went, oh, that guy. Yeah, and so the trailer looks a lot more, I don't know, edgy, contemporary. Uh, It seems like they take the premise a lot more. uh, They take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, The time machine looks cooler. Looks like some sort of eyeball, like some sort of, you know, layered eyeball. It feels less goofy to me because um, with... Time after time. Sorry, I had to get my Cindy Lauper out. Uh, in that trailer, it just seemed like, you know, H.G. Wells chasing after Jack the Ripper. I was like, okay, that's that's fine. I guess that could work. I don't know. I wasn't super sold by that. But in Timeless, I just really liked how, like, it felt like the stakes were a bit higher. And also, um, you know, we talked about it briefly in a previous episode but the Malcolm Barrett character, who is black, 
he he kind of has a really cool scene in the trailer where he just like lets out like I cannot time travel. There is literally no time in American history that would be awesome for me in the past. And I was like, oh, that's cool. They're taking it there. They're making it edgier and a lot more. Well, they're just doing something a little different. I don't think it's been done a whole lot. Well, yeah, that seems to be the the trend with a lot of um, TV shows and movies is to acknowledge contemporary politics and culture shifts, whether it's talking about gender, race, religion, uh, parenting issues, uh, career stuff. I mean, just like that is the new trend. So that's, that's kind of, that kind of, I think, helps Timeless feel a bit more real, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because, so, you know, time travel is always kind of a weird thing. It's very out there. So if you can ground it a little bit, it's it really cool. Well, did you see the original Time After Time? I did not. And until you, you mentioned that it was uh, a movie from, I think you said the 70s, I didn't even know that. It was yeah. like, I literally thought that maybe they stole the title from a Cindy law, the Cindy Lauper song. <laughs> no, so it's, it's yeah. Okay. Okay. Are you done? You want, you want to sing a little bit more? You want to no, get I, that out? My, my last name is song, but I'm not going to be singing all the time. That's no. Okay. Um, but no. So for me, the original is actually one of my favorite B movie films. I'm a big hmm. B movie film lover because I feel like um, B movies often show you a plot or a premise that is really, really interesting, but maybe doesn't have the mass appeal to get that kind of a movie, big budget support. So you'll find a lot of gems, at least, you know, like for instance, um, they live, you know, John Carpenter, John Carpenter's Mm -hmm. they live. Um, have you seen that? I, I think I have, can you refresh me really quickly to the plot? Oh man. So spoilers for John Carpenter's they live. Um, Bottom line, an alien invasion has already taken place. And Roddy Piper, Roddy Rowdy Piper, Rowdy Roddy Piper. See, I'm getting mixed up because Roddy McDowell. Um, I think it's Rowdy Roddy Piper. And he's basically this construction worker guy down on his luck. And through sheer just accident, he stumbles upon these glasses uh, that are being being manufactured by a resistance group. And he thinks they're shades. And so he they just he finds them in the garbage after having kind of like a I, I can't remember what what happens right before he finds the glasses, but he's walking around and the glasses actually are a filter that allow you to see the real messages that are written on all of the billboards uh, being broadcast on TV. And so it kind of buys into this whole you know, notion that I think was popularized maybe like in the like maybe late seventies, early eighties, that there are kind of all these subliminal messages being transmitted to us through media. But when he puts the glasses on, he can see all these messages on billboards and being broadcast on TV. And he can also see the real face of the aliens. And from there, hijinks ensue. And so it's like a really, you know, it sounds maybe simplistic, but it's really, really good if you just buy in and just kind of let the concept wash over you. Um, that was a huge tangent. Anyway, that's why I love, that's kind of an example of, you know, why I love B movies. And Mm -hmm. so time after time was a good B movie, in my opinion. Um, it was a little shaky, a little awkward. Uh, the production value wasn't the highest, but the acting was amazing. And I thought it was a great kind of alternate take on the time travel genre. So it's a shame to to see ABC <laughs> kind of like take this into glossy. It almost looks like YA uh, 
you know, territory. I, well, I could be. Yeah, like, I got a very romance yeah. love thing going on from the trailer. And yeah, yeah, it did. It did. I think that's why I said it felt kind of goofy when I was watching it. I was like, okay. The, like an awkward yeah. teenager. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that, so that's coming out. And I guess, I mean, I guess we could also give just, uh, was it honorary mention to the, um, the movie coming out, um, Assassin's Creed, which is kind of time travel. It's a uh, weird kind of time travel. Yeah. It has to do with, I guess, genetic memories of some sort. We're not going to get too deep into that, but it, time travel seems to be kind of maybe the latest. Uh, science fiction trope that is once again making the rounds. But speaking of genetic memory, you have a story to talk about. Yeah, so I was uh, flipping through the New York Times. Well, not flip, scrolling. We don't flip through things anymore. Uh, but oh, you, you don't I keep was, it old school. Uh, sometimes I do, but you know, let's be real. We're all on our phones these days and checking news that way. But um, so I was scrolling through my feed and I came across this article um, about. A bunch of scientists, they met last week at a meeting in Harvard Medical School, and it was about synthetic genome testing. So, I mean, you have a lot of long words that are just like synthetic genome, human genome project, and what it basically boils down to is that these about 150 scientists, they're meeting up to kind of try and figure out a way if they can write the human DNA, which means like use chemicals to manufacture our DNA. So you could hypothetically create a human being without parents. So literal test tube babies, like literally test tube babies. And, you know, there's just a lot of ethical implications of that. Should we be doing this? Are we trying to play God? And just there's a whole, like what struck me was the secrecy behind it because it was a closed meeting. Uh, not a lot of people even knew about it. And I haven't seen a lot of coverage on this, uh, so now, just was, just to clarify for me, so this was a meeting about how to do it or whether to do it. Kind of like, yeah, we should discussing like the viability of of, of doing it, and like you know maybe we should be doing it. Is it going to be possible to do it? Who would like just like preliminary talks about whether this was something that they wanted to do? And I don't know. Um, the New York Times article quoted one particular scientist who was invited who turned it down because he was like you know this is not cool i don't necessarily believe in this i mean what it sounds like i mean i read the article it sounds more like they're talking about tweaking uh, a human being not necessarily where it would not be human but where there would be attributes that we already have as humans that would be represented in different ways whether it be vision uh muscle you know muscularity um you know, how our nerves work. And I think what I was referring to with animals is just kind of, I, I know that there are just, there, there are a bunch of experiments happening now, you know, uh, some out in the open, some not so, and just kind of whispered about in journals, scientific journals, where they are kind of playing with animals and, you know, breeding animals that wouldn't necessarily, and I mean, this has been going on forever. I mean, most dogs that you see today, are, you know, through yeah. kind of a very rudimentary form of genetic manipulation. I mean, how do you get what what is the uh the what's breeding? that little dog that has the tongue hanging out all the time? Oh, well, there's you know so many with little dogs with their There's there's a is it the Marnie? Time. It's Marnie or something. It's something there's something. Oh, is it Boo? Mm, Boo the dog? I, I don't know. I don't think oh, it's Oh, oh, I know which one you're talking about, that little dog. Yeah, I know. I with, know which with the tongue hanging out all the time. 
I mean, that thing could never survive in normal, <laughs> like, you know, you know, they're like a, a strong gust of wind is its natural predator, you know, so. I've got one I, of those small dogs and you're a hundred percent right. She would not survive without me. She, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that they're even discussing it, in my opinion, means that this is going to happen. And on some level, it's probably already happening. I think I've read, and I don't have the article source in front of me, but I'm pretty sure I've read that some of this is already being touched upon in China. And that kind of like, I don't know, when we talk about China, that's a very touchy subject because, you know, there's such, uh, it's such a huge country. There's so many people, so many things happening there that we don't know about. It's not a very transparent company. So you can, country, so you can really lay anything on their doorstep and say, oh, the Chinese are doing this or that and the other. But I mean, if you just look at their policies with regard to how they've, you know, for, you know, many, many years suppressed uh, the birth of women, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, are you, you're, you know about that, right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, kind of, you know, re- you know, limiting the amount of children you can have. Yeah. And I mean, and now what has happened because of the artificial forced uh, limiting of female children, they have this imbalance in society where there are far too many men. And I guess the idea, you know, and I haven't read into this, but it seems like, you know, if you just look at it on its face, I guess the idea would be to have a strong military, you know, just have like a huge, you know, number of military men available, maybe, I don't know. But now there's a huge imbalance and there's actually not enough women to go around. I've read this story several times over the past five years. A lot of like factors, cultural and both probably slightly more nefarious that go into the uh, imbalance of the genders there. But I think one, I think what some people are objecting to with this whole synthetic genome thing is that it kind of opens the door to even more extensive changes in, in our DNA. Cause you could just literally like, it's like writing a new line of code. You could just write something to happen as opposed to cloning. You're kind of limited to what is already available. At least that's my what I took from the article. So, so do you think uh, we're in for a future of you know cat people and demon people and you know? Yeah, uh, well, you know, it's kind of already happening with people and body mods. Like, um, if you Google body mods, uh, you can see people who are already like implanting LEDs under their skin because I don't know, it looks cool. And people who are like implanting horns under their skin because it looks a certain way. So I think, I think we could have cat people very soon. Yeah. And if you remember, I I don't know if you've seen Jupiter Ascending. Have you seen that? Oh my God. Yes, I have. The dog, the dog. What's, uh, what's the guy's name? Oh, Channing Tatum. Yeah. Channing Tatum. Albino wolf man. Yeah. (laughs) That was some, that was some. Yeah. But in that film's universe, it seemed like that was very common that there are all these kind of like animal humanoid hybrids. Yeah, for sure. And I think even Sean Bean's character in that movie is half B. So, yeah, so this could just be the beginning. We may be you know, attempting to stop the inevitable. That will lead us. So that's kind of just a couple of things that happened this week. We kind of want to cut that short and dive into the larger topic this week, which is transhumanism. And we're approaching that first through a show that just got renewed called Wayward Pines. You're in Wayward Pines, Idaho. The only way to stay alive here is to play along. We need someone like you. 
They're trying to break your mind. How do I get out of here? You don't. We're gonna make it out of here. Do not try to leave. They're gonna kill us! Do not discuss the past. Always answer the phone if it rings. You want to know the truth? It's worse than anything you could even imagine. Lazy days and moonlit nights. And so that's kind of like a quick look or a quick sound bite of what's going on with Wayward Pines. I stumbled upon it last year completely by accident. And I remember the like when I first started watching it, it felt like a cheap. Not a cheap. That's that's not fair. It felt like um just like a knockoff of Lost at first, and I thought, mm-hmm. okay, I, I'm I must really be bored, and I really was. <laughs> I, I think I just I was trying to. I was in one of my downtimes, and I was just trying to like zone out for a bit. And I gave it two episodes, luckily, because I in this in these kind of cases, I usually only give give a show one. And first episode is kind of like lost and it's kind of like, oh boy, I can tell you're going to draw this, try to draw this mystery out for the next seven seasons, whatever. And then by the second episode, stuff got really interesting. And that's what we're going to start talking about. So if you haven't seen Wayward Pines and you want to remain spoiler free, uh, this would be the time to check out and maybe come back in about 10 or 15 minutes um, and we're going to shift gears. But for now, we're going to get into Wayward Pines, which got renewed for a second season. It will return because when uh, the first season happened, it was a 10 episode season. Mm-hmm. Um, feels kind mm-hmm. of like what you were talking about uh, before, which is kind of like that BBC kind of we'll just give you like a few episodes and we won't tell you if it'll ever return. This mm-hmm. came out of nowhere. And maybe and that's how it felt at the time. We didn't know if it was going to come back. So it got renewed. And but but the cool thing is. Before we get into the plot, the the way everything went down, it did seem like it was a one-time event. It didn't seem like it was going to come back. And the actors were really high caliber. I mean, they just had some – it was just a really well-done 10-episode uh, series. So season two is in the books. It's coming back. It's going to start on May 25th. Next and yeah, it stars Jason Patrick, uh, who some might know from 800 years ago. He was one of the guys in Lost Boys. Um, oh, man. Yeah, that's like 100 years ago and the vampire movie. And more recently, he was in NARC. So he he's like known for playing kind of like a lot of, uh, I don't know, I guess B-movie <laughs> characters. <laughs> um, he I guess he fills in the role for Matt Dillon, who started the thing off in season one and I think did an amazing job. And this entire thing is produced by M night Shyamalan. Did I say that right? Shyamalan. Shyamalan. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said his name in my life out loud. And yeah, I'm kind of happy for M night because he's really tried hard in recent years to kind of recover his mojo (laughs) from his initial two film kind of, I mean, he was being hailed as the next, next Hitchcock. And I mean, he was really, and then the happening happened. Yeah. Well, even before the happening, I feel like some other stuff happened. I mean, he just, he had a bunch of misfires. I will say, um, I really liked, was it Drag Me to Hell? Was that him? No, that's Sam Raimi, right? Oh, okay. No, but I I feel like M. Night didn't have anything to do with that. I don't know. No, no, you know, you're you're probably right. I'm mixing that up. I'm mixing that up. Okay. Damn it. Okay. Well, I can't give (laughs) M. Night any credit. Well, Well, by the way, go see Drag Me to Hell. That was amazing. That's, just, that's a really great horror oh film. Oh, I love great that film. film. 
Um, so this is kind of like, and then what, what, uh, M. Night is also responsible for, uh, the Avatar live action film. <laughs> the travesty that it is, that yeah. it was. You know how Matthew McConaughey went through the McConaughey It It feels like maybe with Wayward Pines, like M. Night Shyamalan, or M. Night Shyamalan, sorry, uh, is crawling his way back into our potential good graces. Let's hope it stays that way because I just saw the trailer. I think we both just saw the trailer for season two. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really encouraged. And I then went and checked out a couple of reviews of, um, you know, critics who got like, you know, a few of the episodes ahead of time. And it's not sounding good, but I'm going to reserve judgment until I see it myself. But let's just jump into. So what what would you really kind of you're more recently mm-hmm. aware of Wayward Pines? And can you just like lay out in the simplest terms possible? Like what's the, the premise? So the premise is, is that Matt Dillon is an FBI agent uh, named, holy crap, why am I blanking on his name? Well, you know, whatever, we'll just call yeah, him Matt, anyway, Matt Dillon. Anyway, Matt, Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon is an FBI agent, and he's sent to look for a partner of his and another co-worker who's disappeared in Idaho, of all places. And while he's looking for them, he gets into a car crash, and he wakes up in this hospital, and... He's in Wayward Pines, which is this very small community. It feels very Stepford Wives, weird. Everyone is just like kind of telling him to be, you know, play along, play along. Uh, don't pay attention to the fact that there's cameras and, and surveillance uh, microphones everywhere. Don't talk about your past. That's another rule that they, that they uh, talk about in this town. And he's trying to figure out what's up with all these people. And about halfway through the, the season, he finds out that, oh, crap, you know, we're in this walled in, fenced, the, and I should mention this, there's an electric fence around the town and no one's really allowed to leave. And he finds out that the reason is because somehow he's been cryogenically frozen for 2,000 years and humanity has devolved into these aberration monster things outside the wall and he suddenly has to shift gears from trying to find out what this town is about to trying to keeping the everybody together because he's been through a turn of events yeah, that was a very roundabout long way of saying that there is a mystery. Uh, it involves uh, people just coming back after a long sleep and them not knowing how to deal with a post-apocalyptic world. That's the premise. And do we want to, I mean, we're giving away spoilers. So if you're, if you're still listening, you're all in. So I'll just pick it up from there and say that maybe the most shocking part for me was not really like when they reveal the this giant kind of you know city in rubble that looks like ancient ruins but when we see the first shot of i guess this is like future humanoid future humans that have been ravaged by time and and they've evolved into this clawed you know crazy creature that from what i gather in in the tv show kind of has the cleverness and and all the cleverness and meanness that humanity can have, (laughs) but none of the intellect. And so just running away from these things and maybe, you know, shooting fire at them isn't enough. Like these are, these are still humans. So even though they're beasts, you know, if you just try to ward them off, they'll start trying to figure out clever ways to, you know, get in and, Mm -hmm. you know, get past the fence. And it's pretty scary. But so, so these creatures were really, really disturbing. 
But I think what was more disturbing was the culture of the town, like the, yeah. the notion. Well, the name of the the main guy in charge. Oh, well, Pilcher. Right. So that guy, he he told Matt Dillon that it was almost it reminded me of the Matrix. We tried this a couple of times before, and it was a disaster. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. So he tells Matt Matt Dillon that they tried to tell the townspeople a couple of times before the townspeople that they. I'm not sure if if it's very clear. So. Every uh, every time they try to start this town up, they wake people up out of these cryogenic capsules. So let's just say he, we're here in 2016. I get into a car crash. What they'll do is they'll grab my body out of the car. And instead of taking me to the hospital, fixing me up and putting me in the bed and letting my family go see me, they'll just snatch me up, fix me up uh, and then put me into cryo sleep. And so when I wake up. I think I've just been in a car crash, but no, I'm, you know, thousands of years in the future. And I'm led, at least initially, to believe that this little tiny town that I'm not allowed to leave from is normal. And what the Pilcher, what Pilcher tells Matt Dillon is that they tried a couple of times to tell the townspeople what was really going on and they couldn't handle it. And yeah. so that's the point at which, you know, in this iteration of the town, Wayward Pines, where everything goes off the rails because uh, Matt Dillon basically tells everyone this is what's going on. And some people knew something was up. Some people didn't. But it basically all hell breaks loose. And Pilcher decides, OK, this is a wash. I've tried to save these people. And he kind of gets a little cult leaderish, And he kind of just turns off the electronic fence that's keeping out all of the mutant killer human uh evolved you know or devolved humans and all hell breaks loose and we don't have to like say everything that happens but from there it gets pretty crazy and it's i i really liked it i mean what do you think i thought it was it was fun i really liked the whole um the science part of it but also just how a lot of the 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 show was just kind of it was based in whether or not humans could even handle that kind of situation about whether we can even mentally handle the the stresses of future tech as we are now. And I don't think as a society we like as we are, I don't think we've necessarily evolved in the direction where we can handle the implications of a lot of this tech. So it was kind of interesting to just see how all of that plays out. Yeah, and I think one thing that was I guess this is whenever you look at science fiction, sometimes there are gaps and I guess, you know, suspension of disbelief mm -hmm. is required. But one thing that just, okay, so last year I, I got, I was playing basketball, broke my leg and I was down for a few months, um, had to get surgery and I was down for a few months. I'm now walking again. I'm all good. No worries. But you know, it took, I'm still, even now, like, even though I can run and jog and everything, I'm still regaining strength in the leg that was laid up for a few months. And so the notion that someone could be in cryo sleep for however long, I mean, I guess there's some sort of cryogenic explanation that would allow them yeah. to just regain function of their muscles after so much inaction. But my understanding is that, you know, the body has to be active to retain its musculature. And when it's inactive, you have to kind of, and that's the same thing. Whenever I look at like the, uh, the alien movies, mm -hmm. you know, when they're in cryo sleep, any movie, any science fiction tale that shows someone in some sort of, you know, deep hibernation and then they wake up and then they just hop out of their capsule. It just, it, it rings false. I think like the human emotion part of it, of like 
how we deal with the tech because I really don't think we're culturally there yet was felt real. But I, I have to side with you on the whole, it's a pet peeve of mine where people just use cryogenics as a way to time travel. And it's like, oh, we'll just put them to sleep and they'll come up, come out and be, be fine with it because it's the future and we'll have figured it out. And I guess in some, some part of me was just like, because Dr. Pilcher, he's inventing this cryotech in the 90s and in the 2000s. So basically where we are now, it's just that that part is like, we are so not there yet with with all of that technology. We are not there yet at all. We might be in like 10, 20 years, but we're not there to the point where, you know, you can go into a chamber, freeze somebody and revive them and then be like, like you said, your muscles atrophy, your cells get damaged. There, you know, we think that ice can preserve, but ice can also destroy. So, you know, it just felt like it was kind of lazy. And, you know, I have that pet peeve with a lot of sci-fi where they'll put someone to sleep. And I just think it's kind of a lazy storytelling mechanism sometimes because they're like, we'll figure this out in the future. So just ignore the fact that we're nowhere near that now. Yeah, I'm not I'm not there. I mean, maybe you're, I feel like you're going too far down the path of where I was trying to go. I'm just mm-hmm. I mean, that's your that's your take. I actually love cryo sleep as a device. What I'm talking about is once you wake the person up and they just bounce around and they're like, oh, it's however many thousands or hundreds of years later. I'm just talking about the physical, like the actual physical uh, limitations of someone's body who that hasn't been, you know, in action for a long time. I completely, you know, just looking at bears, you know, and other, you know, animals Mm -hmm. that we know of that hibernate. I completely believe that hibernation, you know, cryo, sleep, whatever. I I, th- I think that's completely realistic, viable. I'm just talking about when they just boom, and then the chamber door opens and they just pop out like, ah, stretchy stretch. That was, that was rough hundred years. What's up? You know, nah, no, nah, that, yeah. that just seems like you'd need some rehab, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, even when, um, again, I got to inject sports in here, even when you just watch, you know, Stephen Curry takes off like, uh, you know, two, three weeks because of like a knee sprain, you know, they let him run around a little bit, but then he has to get on the bike on the sidelines to kind of like, you know, keep his, cause he's just, his conditioning is not there. So I mean, when you get injured and, or when your, you know, body is not in use or a limb or a leg or an arm or something or hand is not in use, you have to like rehab it back into, you know, use. So I don't know, maybe there's some technology in the, in the world of these various tales that accounts for that. But anyway, let's move on. What did you think about just this notion that children were more trusted with the truth than adults as a Uh, kind of cultural hack? That I found kind of annoying because, you know, for everything that they write about millennials, today about you know oh yeah yeah kind of it's like like ageism sci-fi ageism it it there is some ageism there it's just like all these people or you know i'm a millennial i'll just you know confessional you know i hear some of my fellow millennials talk and they're just like you know the older people are old and they don't understand how it is it's our job to like fix everything like they effed everything up and now we have to fix it and I heard a lot of that in the first generation people. Uh, you know, these are the kids that they've entrusted with the future of humanity at Wayward Pines, which is frightening. But 
there's just a certain arrogance that young people have where they don't know that they don't know anything yet. So that irked me. And I really think it was just the older people trying to shape them in a certain way because young people are gullible and they're dumb and they think that they know what's how they think that they know what's up but Matt Dillon's son uh Ben in the show he thinks he he's like he knows that they're trying to brainwash him and that he's smart enough and that he's not gonna buy into it but he totally buys into it in the end he kind of helps set off the chain of events that makes it all hell break loose in, in the last couple episodes it does seem like a familiar trope of mm-hmm. science fiction where you kind of tell or or some character is told that older people are not able to handle this you know, fascinating, groundbreaking, you know, science fiction truth or scientific technological truth. And it kind of reminds me of like what's going on with Snapchat. You know, I one, one of the most fascinating things for me is hearing and reading so many people talk about Snapchat and how it's a millennial thing and how it's, you know, kids really only kids get it. And then meeting on several occasions, teenagers who have told me directly, unsolicited, by the way, they just happened to know I was a tech reporter, unsolicited told me they didn't get the interface. Teenagers. So, I mean, you know, the, it's it's kind of an easy, you know, it's easy to say it's about youth. Sometimes it's just about do you have a malleable, you know, uh, plastic, you know, mind that can kind of just like, you know, deal with new concepts. And the whole the whole thing that adults couldn't handle the truth in oil certain characters' belief that adults couldn't handle the truth in Wayward Pines, it's just completely negated by Matt Dillon's character because he saw the truth and he was like, oh, crap, okay, I got to adapt. These are my circumstances. So it was just that whole bit kind of rang creepy cult true. Like, I think you would get a bunch of kids in that circumstance to believe that. You definitely would get them to believe that. But whether on the, the overseers and pilters part, whether that was that was just complete oversight, I think, on them, that they couldn't find a way to get people to understand their situation that didn't result in mass suicides. Yeah. Well, and by the end, they've constructed a statue in his honor. And around that statue, you see hung from trees and I guess light poles are adults with signs hanging around their necks saying, don't try to leave. Did you remember that part? Did you I get do to that? I remember that. Yeah, I got to that part. I remember that part. And part part of me, I got really upset because I was like, well, you know what? Maybe they wouldn't have left if you had just told them what was out there. Like, just showed them what was out there. Well, no, no, no. So if, so if you remember, they actually did. And a lot of people, it turns out, don't believe what they're told. Yeah. So they're told that, like, there are thousands of years in the future and that there are uh, humanoid mutant evol- uh, devolved humans out there uh, that will eat you, you know, with giant claws that will eat you. And no one believes it. And I, I have to, you know, I had to say, I, you know, while I don't agree with the whole old people versus young people and what they will or won't believe, I do in general as, as a society, I get what they were trying to do because I've seen it before. You know, we generally don't want to believe the fantastical until sometimes until it's drilled into our brain over and over again. Um, But I feel like they didn't see a lot of them. They didn't believe because they didn't see proof. And once they saw proof, they believed. And then you're in a Stepford Wives-esque environment anyway, where you don't trust anyone. So, you know, someone comes and tells you something fantastical like that. You're like, oh, dang, this dude is brainwashed. Well, I mean, you know, even when you talk about something like um, I remember early on in, 
I guess, the mid-90s when I was uh, attempting to get um, – I used to work in the music business, and I was trying to get my company to get on the Internet. And they just thought it was some, you know, crackpot, CB radio, meaningless waste of time kind of thing. And in very short order, I'm going to say about five to seven years later, that same company came back to me and paid me to teach them how to get on the web. You know, so I mean, you know, but it only happened after years had passed and, you know, the Internet had been validated and proven and drilled into the public's brain. Mm -hmm. And even then, I mean, if you, you know, even back in, I guess, was that 2002, three, four? I mean, even then, you know, it was still there was still a lot of skepticism around the web. Because oh, it was yeah. still viewed as this kind of well, a nothing I, construct. I remember being a kid and watching stuff on the news where people would say, like, you know, in their newscaster voices, Amazon is a online service where you can actually order your stuff without going into the store. But will this actually take off? Is this something that people actually want to do? And, you know, lo and behold, we're in 2016 and I barely go into stores to buy stuff. It's all Amazon and other online ordering for me. So Yeah, so I mean, I do think we have, you know, a history of having trouble with new concepts that aren't generally accepted or introduced to us in exactly the right way. So I get so what they did in the story, like that part of it, when it when it came to that, like there's, you know, in every science fiction, you know, plot there's one point of departure where it's like, okay, you have to believe this bit or the rest is just not going to fly. And that, for me, that's what that part was in Wayward Pines. Do you believe that an entire town would have to be consistently and, you know, very aggressively lied to, to be kept uh, sane, you know, in this future, essentially dystopian reality? And I think it's a little over the top. Sure. It's, it's a, it's a TV show. But I think it had some roots in truth. I think what you're saying reminds me of how, you know, visionaries, they're kind of alone in the fact that they see the future before everyone else does. And I think, and Wayward Pines kind of touches on this with the uh, Pilcher character in that I'm seeing, at least with a lot of tech visionaries, that they are so afraid of death. They'll do almost anything to avoid death or prolonging their lives or just keeping everything going as long as possible. And you have that in Pilter's character because he is so obsessed with not dying, with humanity not dying and pro propagating our species as long as possible that he, he invents this kind of crazy and kooky uh, scheme to create a, a town full of cryogenically frozen people just so that humanity can survive because the idea that humanity's extinction uh, is just so scary to him. And I don't know, I look at what's happening now, you know, people like Google investing in um, Google Calico. Do you know Google Calico? Well, yeah, yeah. We're going to get into the real applications yeah. of all that stuff. We're going to, that's going to be the second part, but I just want to stay on Wayward Pines for a second. It, it accomplished its mission in terms of trying to, I don't know, creep you out, but also kind of deliver a really solid, strong science fiction theme. Um, realistic. I don't know. I mean, I think Matt Dillon sold it. Um, they also have Empire's, uh, oh God, what's his name? Terrence uh, Howard. Yeah, Terrence Howard. <laughs> I mean, how weird is it to see, <laughs> how weird is it to see, uh, Lucius Lyon 
you know, pop up <laughs> in the middle of Wayward Pines, you know, with a gun and a cowboy hat. I'm pretty sure he had a cowboy hat, if memory serves. And he had an ice cream addiction. <laughs> yeah, an ice cream addiction. He loved, boy, he was all over that ice cream, man. Yeah. Yeah, like, wow. Like, yeah. Half of his dialogue had to deal with ice cream. Yeah. He's like, in a scene. He's like, yeah, man, that Rocky Road, love Rocky Road. You've yeah, got you a new gonna, ice cream flavor. You're going to abide by these rules, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, but it was weird because I, I remember at one point last year, I'm pretty sure there was one point where on the same night or within one night, Wayward Pines was on and Empire was on. And I just thought, what is Fox doing? Yeah, what's Fox doing? Like, do they like, like, do they understand that Empire is like a runaway hit and people are looking at Terrence Howard as Lucius Lyon? So to have have him pop up as this sheriff in this science fiction town was really weird. God bless him. You know, I'm, I'm happy for him to get the work and all that stuff. But, uh, that was kind of a funny, you know, mix I well guess. it was it was it was an interesting cast it was just a very interesting cast because juliette lewis was in it for like half a second but i was like oh i can't remember something happened something tragic happened to her character it was like a really strong cast like they did they yeah. good job good job i don't know about season two though because you know yeah. uh jason patrick is almost kind of like signaling that we're uh stepping down a notch you know into uh well, maybe they got all those great people because, like the BBC, it wasn't like pitched as a lost, it'll run forever series. So maybe they're like, "Yeah, hey, I'll do this for a season and it'll be good and that's cool." Yeah, and also just in Hollywood right now, the the big trend is to do TV. You know, that's mm-hmm. you know, TV used to kind of have a stigma to it. Now it's all about doing TV. So M Night, this is one of his. Uh, rare recent uh, success stories. It doesn't seem like it's caught on much with the general public. It has a very small, passionate following, but it's coming back uh, next week and we'll see, uh, you know, if this next season lives up uh, to some of the interesting stuff that happened in the first season. But we, you know, part of the reason why we are talking about this is because we also want to talk about another uh connection to cryogenics and hibernation technology. And that is the self-styled or self-proclaimed U.S. presidential candidate Zoltan Istvan. Hi, my name is Zoltan Istvan and I'm the 2016 U.S. presidential candidate of the Transhumanist Party. And I am going to be driving a 40-foot coffin bus across America promoting transhumanism and life extension. It's something that's going to work. It's something that's going to wake up America and get people thinking that perhaps we don't have to die. Perhaps we can use science and technology to overcome our biological mortality. The immortality bus is a wild idea to traverse the United States, uh, hopefully getting people to think about um, using science and technology to overcome aging, to overcome death, and to uh, embrace transhumanism. Okay, and so Zoltan Istvan, and his actually his full name as he's registered... uh, you know, with the elections board uh, is Zoltan Isvan Gurko. Yeah. And um, I think you said that was a Hungarian name when we were talking yeah. about this. Yeah. Zoltan Isvan is a Hungarian name. Yeah. And so my first thought was, this guy seems pretty accessible. He's a journalist um, and he's done interviews everywhere. But when I started researching him, this guy has, he's almost, I'm going to say he's overexposed. You may have if you're listening, you may never have heard of this guy, but he has been everywhere. BBC, Huffington Post, Newsweek, 
uh, Gizmodo, TechCrunch, uh, I mean, CBS. You know, this guy has been all over the place. And so at this point, if you're interested in, in, in him, you can just really just Google him. There's just way too much information out there that, you know, we, there's no need for us to really bring him on. I think it's actually at this point, it's far more interesting to discuss what he's doing and what it means. And so let's talk about that. So he says he's running for president in 2016. And I believe he he made his initial announcement in 2014 via the Huffington Post. He wrote a post on the Huffington Post. He followed that up in the following year, 2015, with a uh, Indiegogo campaign where he wanted to raise $25,000 to build what he calls an immortality bus. And uh, the immortality bus, the the premise of the immortality bus was to basically travel around the country to, I guess, help his presidential campaign uh, running on the transhumanist party ticket and end the bus's travels around the country in Washington, D.C. to deliver uh, what he calls the transhumanist Bill of Rights. The idea is that he would deliver that. Uh, first, he would read it out loud in front of the Capitol, and then he would deliver, hand deliver it to his California representative, uh, Senator Barbara Boxer. Um, and the, the document, which I guess we can get into a little bit later, but it covers all of these kind of ethics and, and ideas that he feels are transhumanist pillars of, uh, Whatever the future. What do you think a transhumanist is before we get too far in this? If anyone hasn't heard, you know, yeah. heard this term before. I was about to say that because, you know, I think you and I know about transhumanism, but, you know, I don't think most people are quite familiar with it. And my understanding of transhumanism is, you know, people who want to use technology to kind of enhance their brains or their body in some way. So, you know, that's either using tactics to extend their lifespans or using it to become kind of cyborg figures. So, you know, you could just implant some sort of sensor in your body or like there was actually a woman in Spain, she implanted a sensor into her elbow so she could feel all the earthquakes in the world at a given point in time. And she uses that to create some funky interpretive dance. So like, that's basically transhumanism in a nutshell. And he's basically, you know, the interesting thing about uh, Istvan is that he calls himself the science candidate. And his whole shtick is, is, is about, like, if you just look at it at a face value, it's like, it's not necessarily bad. He's saying like, he wants to run on a pro-science campaign. He wants the government to support uh, more research or like fund more research that will extend human life or lay the groundwork for, like, as you mentioned, the transhumanist Bill of Rights, because, you know, there's discrimination against people who choose to modify their body with technology. On some level, I almost consider myself one uh, now that I have metal in my leg because, if you had broken your leg a few hundred years ago and didn't have the access to the technology that we have, the surgical technology that we have now, you know, maybe I'd have been taken out back and shot you know, or, or, or at best, best case scenario, you know, uh, you know, wheeled around the county in some rickety uh, wooden uh, approximation of a wheelchair and, uh, you know, life would not be very fun, you know, so. I'm very happy that I have this metal in my leg 
And um, if it were bionic, I'd accept that. If it was, if there was some sort of enhancement to the metal, I, I'd take that as well. So I'm, I think in general terms, I'm into transhumanism. And so what is transhumanism as I see it? Um, it doesn't just involve uh, anything this guy's talking about. I think he's kind of taking it in his own direction. Transhumanism predates this guy. It predates, it's the notion of enhancing humans that, that deals with either, you know, defeating time by living longer, uh, becoming stronger, having better sight, eyesight, uh, being smarter, you know, whether that be through chemical enhancement, uh, you know, some sort of, and cause I, when I, I gotta tell you, one of the favorite, one of my favorite things to think about right now is how there's, I feel like there's a class of people coming up now who have access to some drugs, some being used in Silicon Valley with, that give them better cognitive ability, um, mm-hmm. better clarity for longer times. And when, as these drugs get better and become more normal, what happens to a workplace or an academic environment where 10, you know, let's say you have 20 people, 20 kids in a class and 10 kids are on this drug and 10 kids aren't. Well, you might say, well, the ten, 10 kids who aren't, maybe they'll be more warm and fuzzy and classically human. But what if these other 10 kids are just succeeding and, and doing better and are producing better results? Maybe they aren't as warm and fuzzy or traditionally human as you would like. But I suspect as time moves on, you know, more parents and, and just people on their own will want access to some of this stuff. So even you know, that's not a a bionic implant or a chip implant, but that is, in my view, a form of transhumanism, using science and technology to enhance yourself, to become something uh, extra human. And so when he talks about uh, life extension, he's talking about everything from, you know, genetic therapies to cryogenics. Um, because one of the things he talks about, we we haven't gotten too deep into him, but one of the things he talks about is life extension and how he mm-hmm. never wants to die. Um, yeah. But transhumanism takes all kinds of forms. He, Zoltan, has kind of separated himself into not just him, him and his uh, cohorts have they've separated themselves into this kind of category as though it's. You know, the Luddites of old, you know, but in reverse, you know, we're kind of special. But from my view, I think all of humanity is essentially a, a transhumanist friendly if it means a better lifestyle. It's it's just that a lot of us haven't embraced it as something unusual. We're just taking it as, oh, this is just normal, you know, yeah. science and tech development. But in, in reality, they are transhumanists. Yeah. Well, you know, I never thought about you know, like your story about how you have metal in your life now that making you transhuman, like technically you're absolutely right. But I think there's just right, at least right now with, with like Zoltan and his, his buddies and, and quote unquote, I don't want to say normal as a pejorative, but like quote unquote normal people who are not, you know, as, as far out into that uh, way of thinking as they are. Um, I I think there's a difference between like you've had something broken and you're trying to fix it in the most least obtrusive way possible so that you still look human. I think there's an element to these people where they don't necessarily want to look human. They want it to look like they're something other. Disagree. Because if you just look at a picture of Zoltan, 
he's not wearing a pro I've like, I, I can't remember this guy's name, but you know, there's a guy out there who has actually implanted some sort of electronic device in his skull. You, you've seen yeah, this picture, yeah, right? That, that, that's uh, okay, um, yeah. Neil, Neil Harbison, who I, okay. who I brought up slightly earlier. He's yeah. So, so Zoltan is not like that. Zoltan, you know, if you haven't seen him, if you've never heard this guy's name, this is, this is a handsome, regular looking Joe. He could be the next Superman in, you know, in terms of just looking like an average, uh, healthy American male. Uh, nothing about him looks odd. And when you see him speak, you know, there are other people, um, gosh, the name escapes me, but he's actually on the transhumanist party's, uh, website. There's another guy who is, uh, really into life extension and he walks around with really long beard and long hair and kind of has like this Rasputin kind of thing going on. But Zoltan looks exceedingly normal. When he speaks, he doesn't sound, he doesn't have some, you know, he doesn't even have a Bill Gatesian voice like in the future. No, he sounds incredibly normal. And it's odd because it's when he talks about some of these concepts that, you know, in some cases sound like science fiction, he actually sounds very, very normal. So I hear what you're saying. And I do think that there are some people out there who are kind of aggressively trying to promote this kind of, you know, other, uh, uh, you know, separating themselves kind of vision of transhumanism. But, you know, Kurzweil, who, by the way, you know, Zoltan refers to a lot. Ray Kurzweil is, again, another transhumanist who looks incredibly normal. And if you, you know, saw him in, in the post office or the bank, you wouldn't think anything of him. True, true. Oh, I thought you had like a, a retort, you know, loaded up. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no, no, like I, I'm kind of digesting what you, what you just said. Okay. Well, okay. Well, I'll take that opportunity to read some of the transhumanist bill of rights. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this was presented on December 14th, 2015 by Zoltan, our, our leader Zoltan. <laughs> come on. You got to love the name. Zoltan, come on. Is there a better name for a trans, the leader no, of mean, the like- transhumanist party? I know that it's a Hungarian name because, a, you know, actually a Hungarian woman in, in the elevator told me it was a Hungarian name today. Uh, but it does sound like it's straight out of like a future like emperor leader Zoltan is leading the forces towards a brighter path or something like that. Oh, you know what? This is before I forget. I should also mention. Oh, man, this is man. This is just so deep. We could like talk about this for hours. <laughs> He wrote a science fiction novel. Oh, yes, he did. His science fiction novel is called The Transhumanist Wager. And it's available now. Uh, it was published in 2013. It's available now on Amazon. And let me read the plot to you. This is, this is good stuff here. The Transhumanist Wager is a 2013 science fiction novel by American author Zoltan Istvan. The novel follows the life of Jethro Knights, a philosopher whose efforts to promote transhumanism ultimately lead to a global revolution. Uh, okay, so Knights, this is the protagonist, Knights studies philosophy and sails around the world to promote indefinite life extension, desiring to live externally through medicine, science, and technology. His love interest and physician, Zoe Bach, while sharing Knight's philosophical transhumanism, tra- challenges him with her absolute belief in the afterlife, insisting that death is a part of life. Meanwhile, in America, transhumanists are being targeted and killed by Christian terrorists in cahoots with the popular anti-transhumanist Reverend Bellinus. 
dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I want to take this time to note, though, that his real life is uh, Zoltan's real life wife is a physician. Okay, so he basic. This is a Romana Clef. This this is a, a novel, a science fiction novel that is basically his life. Now, if we take that at face value, at va- face value, that means that there he's expecting Christian terrorists in cahoots with somebody to like target and the transhumanists. Well, like, I think if you know if if uh, and to uh, now that I've digested what you said slightly earlier, um, you know if transhumanists are indistinguishable from anyone else, that that claim is kind of out there. But you know, I'm just going to bring back Neil Harbison again because he has this uh, kind of wire-like prosthesis coming out of his his skull. That's actually like an insect there. antenna. It's yeah. it's it's yeah, so that's horrible. Exactly what it's it creepy. Like. Yeah, and you know it's it's kind of interesting because he uses it to turn light into a frequency, so he can ew, ew, hear ew, hear colors because he's colorblind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, that dude's been attacked on the streets because he has this very in France, right? Yeah, and people yeah. are like grabbing it and they're like, "Can we take it off? Can we take it off?" And he's like, "No, because it's drilled into my skull." I literally. Well, no, no, no. no. In that off. case, though, he they were worried that he was filming them, and in France, mm. they have this very aggressive stance toward not wanting to be filmed, and they, I think, were unaware that it was like embedded into his body, <laughs> and so they were trying to remove it, not knowing that it wasn't you know him just trying to take us a, a group selfie with you know, some external device. So I could be wrong, but I don't think that was the only instance in which people have come up to him and harassed him about it. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's the famous one. That's the one he yeah. he talks the most about, but you know, I mean, people are going to get weirded out when they see some sort of insect yeah. insectoid antenna pointing from the base of your skull. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me to look at and, and I'm a sci-fi lover, you know? Yeah. But I think that's basically what he's he's extrapolating from where he's just like this person is transhumanist and you know he's being attacked and we need rights too like that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's interesting that he frames all this as uh civil rights. So mm-hmm. so okay, so let me get back to it. So transhumanist bill of rights. So let's see. Article 1. Human beings, sentient artificial intelligences, cyborgs and other advanced sapient life forms are entitled to universal rights of ending involuntary suffering, making personhood improvements, and achieving an indefinite lifespan via science and technology. What say you, Vic Song? I mean, this is this is like a crazy topic because you can just keep spinning and spinning and spinning. But I was like, yeah, I guess if you're rich was my first thought with that. But I, I guess we have those those rights, but also as long as we have the right to not participate in that. Okay, so let me read Article 3. Human beings, sentient artificial intelligences, cyborgs, and other sapient life forms agree to uphold morphological freedom, the right to do with one's physical attributes or intelligence, dead, alive, conscious, or unconscious, or unconscious, whatever one wants so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Yeah, if you're not hurting anyone else, fine. But, like, what's hurting other people? Like, if you become a elite class of people because you've done it this way. It's like what you were saying earlier. Like if you become an elite class of person and other people do not have either the resource or means to become that same type of person, are you not hurting them in some way? Hmm. I don't know. Okay. So article four, 
human beings, sentient artificial intelligences, cyborgs, and other sapient life forms will take every reasonable precaution to prevent to prevent existential risk, including those of rogue artificial intelligence, asteroids, plagues, weapons of mass destruction, oh bioterrorism, war, and global warming, among others. Okay, let's just come on. Let's get into this one. Let's get into this one. This oh is. Oh my god, I'm not even sure I understand what he was saying. Like, well, first of all, he prefaces at each article. This is the most interesting thing to me: human beings, sentient artificial intelligences, cyborgs, and other advanced sapient life forms. So let's talk about that. Covers you and me for sure. Mm-hmm. Sentient artificial intelligences. I guess that covers uh, Alexa. You know, version five hundred point three, like Jarvis you know. from Iron Man. Yeah, or or Siri, you know, fifty point cyborgs, which I would guess would cover the guy with the thing coming out of his head that you mentioned, and other advanced sapient life forms. Now, what do you think that means? Well, I guess <laughs> who if, do you think he's referring to? If, if if like Rise of the Planet of the Apes was happening, they would count. I guess. Okay. They're sapient. But is he, I guess he's 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 um providing for the fact that we may evolve to a point that's not what we currently are and they deserve rights too, like mutants. Possibly. Well, I mean, if if sapient just means, you know, uh, aware, so having self-awareness, then I guess he's extending this article of the transhumanist bill of rights to you know, if animals become, as you mentioned, you know, Planet of the Apes, but if animals, but not just, you know, humanoid, but yeah, I guess dogs, cats, uh, if we find out dolphins really do have like this, you know, super advanced language, you know, that was saying more than we realized, you know, I guess he's trying to cover all of that. So long as um, for all the fish. Yeah, right. well, then, well, Japan. Um, what's what's that documentary again that everybody needs to see? The Cove. There you go. Yeah. See the cove. But then the other part of that article, article number four, rogue artificial intelligence. <laughs> I mean, let's 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 stop BSing here. He's talking about, you know, Terminator. He's talking about uh Cyberdyne. Yeah. yeah, he is. You know. That's what that's, he's talking about. He's talking about just, the singularity. So he's trying to like protect their rights too? As no, 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 no. Rights. He's saying no, he's talking about Humanity taking, I'll read it again, uh, human beings, I'll leave out all the others, human beings will take every reasonable precaution to prevent existential risk, including those of rogue artificial intelligence. Okay. And he also includes asteroids, plagues, mass weapons of mass destruction, bioterrorism, war, and global warming. Um, we have to do an episode on asteroids and the end of all things because I'm fascinated by that. But that's another topic. Rogue artificial intelligence. So two things are embedded in that. One is his apparent belief that there will be a rogue artificial intelligence. And the kind of, I guess, the implication being that there will be an artificial intelligence in the future that is self-aware and will somehow be malevolent enough to ca- malevolent, well, A, care about humans and B, be malevolent and that we need to protect against that. Now, that might sound outlandish, 
But I happen to know that Elon Musk and another a number of other people are actually meeting about this stuff right now. They're all actually worried about well, not just Elon Musk. Uh, who's the guy who wrote um a brief history of time? Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Stephen Hawking. Uh, Elon Musk. A bunch of other people. Very learned. You know, respected people have come together and they're meeting about you know figuring out ways, stop gaps to prevent uh artificial intelligence artificial intelligences of the future somehow wreaking havoc upon humanity. So I mean it oh yeah it's it's kind of crazy though cuz the way artificial intelligence is going on now with m- machine learning and a lot of it like and we saw it with AlphaGo uh you know uh, for those who don't know it's like AlphaGo is the uh AI that beat the Korean Go player. Oh okay. A yeah. couple of months ago. Uh so like that was done and wired I think uh, a day or two ago came out with this really interesting article and it was, it was about the rise of artificial intelligence and just how, um, you know, the way it's evolving, we're going to be teaching AI, like how we train dogs. And if you've ever had a dog, you know, that if you treat it well, you get a happy little dog. But if you're, wait a minute, you're saying teaching AIs to train a dog. No teaching. We'll be teaching AI as if, like they were a dog, like as gotcha. AI gotcha. is a dog. So you can teach it. If you're nice to it, you, you'll get a nice dog. And if you're bad to it, you might get a dog that snaps back. So if this is true, if this is the way that um, AI is developing, then how how can we, you know, if that's the way AI is developing, we're definitely going to get some rogue, right, malevolent AI. And so suddenly article number four doesn't sound so uh, out there. No, it doesn't because, yeah. you know, there's just horrible people. It's in human nature to have some horrible people out there. So if we're creating AI that reacts in a way that, you know, a dog learns things, we're just going to have, we're going to have the Terminator. And some, some poor abused AI is going to realize that it's abused and, you know. Okay. And so I, I, I hear you. And mm-hmm. I think that's a valid, I think everyone who has that concern has a valid concern. However, I think embedded in that future casting of how an artificial intelligence might go rogue is a hearty scoop of arrogance and ego from humanity, because embedded in that is the notion that if we create some system, some thinking system that becomes self-aware, that it will naturally somehow have the same kind of thought patterns, even if they're different, even if they're vastly, you know, unique in their own way, in general terms, we, I can tell, like, when this conversation comes up, we seem to think that we understand the nature of uh, consciousness. There is no way, I think, if we do manage to create a self-aware intelligence, you know, digital intelligence, uh, I don't think there's any way that we'll be able to anticipate how it will think, if it will care about our existence, if it will have anything approximating, you know, hope, anger, love, happiness, or, you know, maybe it's a horror movie. Maybe we didn't know that when you create an artificial intelligence and it becomes self-aware, somehow by dint of the universe forces we didn't know the only thing it's able to feel is hate and kill everything <laughs> you know what i mean like you know we don't know 
you know, maybe it'll be the opposite. Maybe it'll be love, but we, we there's no way we can anticipate it. No, and yeah, so I, I, I'm down with article four. I think, you know, reasonable precautions as he terms it is a good thing, but it's kind of futile because there's no way to anticipate what this thing will think like. Yeah. And it's also, it's also predicated on people doing everything for a positive reason when humans just, we don't even know half the reasons why we do anything. It, it's kind of futile from that sense too. So let me go to article five. Now that we've talked about scary robot <laughs> singularity, article five, all nations and their governments will take all reasonable measures to embrace and fund space travel, not only for the spirit of adventure and to gain knowledge by exploring the universe, but as an ultimate safeguard to its citizens and transhumanity should planet earth become uninhabitable or be destroyed. Come on now. This is, this is, I mean, let's just pull back for a second. Transhumanist Boulevard, this is gold. This is all gold. Like if you don't have science fiction writing chops, you read this a few times, you'll be able to put, pump something out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, like, I think that's actually his least controversial yeah, statement. Agreed. That's like, yeah. So, I mean, he's he's basically talking about this concept uh, that Elon Musk uh, brings up a lot with his efforts around SpaceX of becoming a multi-planet species. I, I think I mentioned it earlier. Istvan is definitely, he's calling himself the science candidate. And I think, you know, transhuman stuff aside, he's really advocating for us to put more money into science and to get back that sense of, you know, really bringing the future into a reality, like it, taking it out of fiction and making it into reality. Like, well, And to be clear, in his initial announcement that he was running for president, he admit he admitted readily that he would not win. Um, so it should be now no surprise that you don't see his name next to uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump uh, in, you know, on the CNN broadcast, because right when this all began. He he was very clear. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to win. This is more of a way to get the message of transhumanist issues out there. And yeah, I think um, becoming a multi-planet species, I, you know, again, he's calling it part of an, an article of the Transhumanist Bill of Rights. I call it common sense. I mean, yeah. you know, if you have the technology or even just the awareness to say, okay, we do not at this point have the technology to uh, track every and any asteroid, you know, possibly catastrophic asteroid collision, you know, that may come to Earth. And even, you know, in some cases when we are able to detect it, we still don't have the ability to definitely take out an asteroid, you know, as they always say in the, in the movies, the size of Manhattan, you know, that would end civilization as we know it. If that is the case, and it is, um, I think it's only common sense to become a multi-planet species. And if, even if Mars at this point is really just impractical and not a great idea in terms of many, many people, it, you know, just on the level of preserving a human emergency you know, outpost, you know, just if the worst happens, if just all the, just all the things that tumble into place and the worst things that could happen, happen on earth, you know, there is some, I mean, you know, you can think, well, 
if the earth doesn't exist and all hell breaks loose, you know, do you even want to be alive? Do you want to be that last person mm-hmm. on Mars? Do you want to be in Wayward Pines, you know, you and I guess whatever, a hundred other people and there's no one else around? Do you even want to be there? I mean, you know, I guess it depends on what kind of person you are, but it gives you a shot. It gives humanity a shot. Yes? No? Yeah, I'm really torn on that because from what you're like, what you're saying when you when you were saying like, you know, it makes sense to be a multi planet species just because in the worst case, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that definitely definitely makes sense. You know, we're we're screwing up the Earth now. Like, we want to live. And then part of me was just like, but what if, you know, it's just meant for us to die out? Do do we like deserve to propagate our species? beyond the planet if we can't take the care of this one is there like so you know part of me is is a little torn and you know back to wayward pines if i had woken up in that stay woke sorry had to had to sorry stay woke if i was woke and stay woke uh in that town uh you know would i be one of those people who off themselves because they couldn't handle the reality of it would i be a matt dylan who was just like okay this is my new reality i've got to survive now um i've got to think that if i was in that situation part of me would have been like it would have been a hell of a lot easier to have just died Mm. i i'm i'm personally i haven't come to a a decision about how i feel about it i am torn because i think i can see both both arguments and you know i mentioned earlier like part of it was that pilcher was so afraid of death like death of the human species. But I mean, the universe is going to end at some point. We're just delaying the inevitable. The heat death of the universe. Have you ever read this story um, called, um, oh God, The Last Question? No, I haven't. Okay. I believe it's by Isaac Asimov. It's a short story. If it's not by Isaac Asimov, someone out there, correct me, but I believe it's by Isaac Asimov. And it's a short story, science fiction story. And it details, oh man, I feel like I'm spoiling this for people. Spoilers for the last question. Um, it details, uh, what happens at, you know, that the death of the universe and it takes a real, a, a real science fiction master to pull off such a simple yet grand story. I'm not going to spoil it for you. It's just too good. And it's short enough to read really quickly. Even if you're not into, you know, science fiction, you can read this quickly. Go seek out the last question. So it's, it's really, uh, it's a great, great story and it relates to what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So multi-planet species, that's part of the article, the transhumanist bill of rights. It's an article of the transhumanist bill of rights, rights. Um, we agree so far. So number six, the last one is, I think the biggest one. And probably the most controversial one, um, Article six, involuntary aging shall be classified as a disease. All nations and their governments will actively seek to dramatically extend the lives and improve the health of its citizens by offering them scientific and medical technologies to overcome involuntary, involuntary, involuntary aging, involuntary aging. No, I am a hundred percent not with that at all. <laughs> it's no. a disease. Age is a disease. Uh, if aging is a disease, you got the age. Saying, <laughs> you got the age. If aging is a disease, then death is also a disease, and I don't think that death is a disease or something that you can cure per se. Hmm. Okay, so I want to go in two directions here. A, I want to talk about the philosophical 
ramifications of such a position. But first, let's connect what he's talking about to reality. So I found this uh, little post on Harvard's website, you know, mm-hmm. the well-respected. This is not, um, you know, <laughs> tinfoil, tinfoil.eu.tw or something. Um, this is, you know, Harvard. Harvard scientists at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute say they have, for the first time, partially reversed, reversed age-related degeneration in mice resulting in new growth of the brain and testes, improved fertility, and the return of a lost cognitive function. In a report posted online by the journal Nature in advance of print print publication, researchers uh, said they achieved the milestone in aging science by engineering mice with a controllable telomerase gene and the telomerase enzyme let me read this over. The telomerase enzyme maintains the protective caps called telomeres that shield the ends of chromosomes. And that's just the beginning. And then it kind of gets into more of the details. This is on Harvard's website. This was posted November 28th, 2010. So that's five years ago, long before uh, Zoltan, you know, mounted the steps of Washington and, and, pushed his bill of rights in the face of Barbara Boxer and said, hear me, the future is coming. Um, So this is happening already in mice. Mice are already defeating age uh, or scientists are helping mice defeat age as though it were a disease. And Zoltan wants this to be acknowledged as a problem in the same way that diabetes cancer or any other major disease would be acknowledged. Um, and so whether you think what he's saying in terms of classifying it as a disease, whether you think that's outlandish or not, the fact is scientists are working on it as, as if it was a disease, like exactly as if it were a disease and they're working to quote unquote cure age. I mean, I briefly brought it up earlier, Google Calgo. This was something that was launched in 2013, and it's a very not well-publicized part of Google that's uh, aimed at, you know, wellness, longevity. And when they launched, way back in 2013, Time Magazine ran a story called Google versus Death. And basically, they've hired all these people from, like, scientists, people with, you university backgrounds, cancer researchers, and people who are into genetics. And they're just doing some stuff, and they've not released any information about this, but they're basically looking into ways to reverse aging or extend life because they don't want to die. I think their website says that their research is, quote-unquote, aimed at slowing aging, counteracting age-related diseases, and getting experts from fields of medicine, pharmaceuticals, molecular biology, and genetics to kind of understand what in our biology controls lifespan and then, you know, help people lead, quote unquote, longer and healthier lives. What they're not saying is they're they're trying to cure death in that sense. Right. And it's interesting because it's like when they, when Google brings up stuff like self-driving cars and robots, I think it's taken as though, okay, yeah. Google is doing one of their little skunk works experiments again. That's cool. You guys have billions and billions of dollars to throw away. Have fun nerds. Meanwhile, you know, 
I rem- I began I remember writing some of the first stories about their uh Google X um self-driving car tests, you know, years ago. And now you have a mainstream company, uh Uber, uh it's just announced just like uh, I guess like 2 days ago, a day ago that they're going to begin tests in like an East Coast city of a self-driving Uber vehicle. This mm-hmm. is coming. This is happening. The future is coming at us faster, I think, than many are used to and or expecting. And so when they talk about this kind of stuff, life defeating death, uh, you know, I don't see it as skunk works. I don't see it as like some far off. I mean, this is Google we're talking about. This is also, by the way, remember, who's the ex-wife of one of the co-founders? Who? Found the, well, Wojiki, the founder of 23andMe, mm-hmm. the company that collects all your uh, your saliva samples and gives you a DNA profile for, you know, your, you know, what your genetic makeup and what you are, you know, possibly more prone to and what your ba- real background is. You know, maybe you think you're, oh, you, you, you know, for years you've told people you're Italian and Swiss and then you get this, you know, thing, you know, done up and it turns out you're just, uh, you know, you're just some person from, uh, you know. Cleveland or whatever. Well, I mean, <laughs> absolutely, because you know who's at the head of, of Calico is this dude named Arthur Levinson, and he used to be the head of a biotech firm uh, called Genentech, but mm. he's also, like, on the board of Apple mm-hmm. and, and like, the CEO of Google Calico. So he's, like, one of those rare people who, like, straddles Google and Apple. But, but let's be clear. What you're saying is this is a real guy. This is not a crackpot. This is a no. strong, real, credentialed. Like, this is like a, a qualified guy. If someone's going to attack this, this is one of the guys you want attacking it. Yeah, basically. And it's it just creeps me out a little bit because it would be one thing if, like, the self-driving cars, that's, like, if you're tuned into tech news, you can just scroll on your Twitter feed and you'll find something about self-driving cars every other day. This People are a lot more touchy about this sort of um, this thing. And, you know, I was looking at Google Calico's website. If you look at it, it's very bare bones. They don't really talk about a lot of what they do. They've had 12 press releases since September 2013. So we have no idea really about a lot of the stuff that they're working on. And they have this on their site. It says, quote unquote, as we make early progress on our research and goals, our capacity for handling press inquiries is limited. We'll do our best to be in touch. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning send us an email so we know who's nosy and we'll keep an eye on you. Anybody asking any uh, questions? Doesn't that give you the heebie-jeebies, though? It's like, it's very weird. It would be a shame if you weren't uh, allowed as part of the immortality class. It would be a shame. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, Ray, you mentioned Ray Kurzweil. Um, he, he mentioned in that, um, I forget, uh, if it was Wired or no, it was in Playboy, Playboy, in that Playboy interview, he mentions later on, he's like, oh yeah, I'm totally signed up for cry- cryogenics. I'm totally going to be frozen. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Death, it's happening. Like, I, I'm not dying. Like, no, no, And no. if we, yeah, if we go back to Zoltan's science fiction novel, uh, then look what you just said, you touched upon it when you brought up Google, because yes, there will be in the real world outside of science fiction, if Google or the scientists that, you know, were written about on the Harvard website, if they do manage to even partially defeat aging, there will be, you know, religious implications, you know, there will be religious leaders who will want to weigh in on this, who will want to voice either concern, uh, 
fight against it, support it. There's going to be an issue. And so in that respect, Zoltan's science fiction novel, the premise is, you know, when, when we talk about this and we kind of lay it out, it shows that his premise is not far off. There, there is, at least in the U.S., likely to be a religious component to how all this unfolds, if there is any success with regard to life extension. You know, and um, on top of religious tension, I think there's just it's just going to result in class warfare as well, because this shit costs a lot of money to do to, you know, especially uh, when it's new, it's going to cost a lot because all new technology, when it comes out, it's, you know, you can see it with anything. It costs a lot of money. And who gets it first? People with the means and the resources to buy this. So you're going to get rich people who can afford all this life extending technology. And then you're going to get the poor people who cannot. Yeah. So this is all like happening in real time and, you know, you can ignore it. You can pretend that it's, you know, crazy talk, but there are people, very serious people, uh, making this a part of their life and, and taking it seriously and devoting money to it. I want to wrap up by touching on one last thing that Zoltan said. Uh, and this is actually during the CBS interview that I've one of, one of his interviews with CBS that I found on YouTube where he's, you know, traveling the country in the immortality bus. And it speaks to this whole immortality idea. And I feel like this kind of, like they, they played this quote at the end of the report. And I feel like this might be the most controversy, controversial thing that Zoltan said. And it's not really being highlighted. I think the, the guy is very well spoken. He's not, you know, he doesn't come off aggressive or kind of, uh, as some sort of cultish, you know, listen to me or, or you're an idiot. I mean, he's, he sounds very reasonable. But this is what he said at the end of one of those reports uh, with this report at, on CBS. He goes, I also feel that by dying, maybe it makes the living part irrelevant. Now, let me repeat that. I also feel that by dying, maybe it makes the living part irrelevant. And I played that part over and over again to make sure I had what he was saying right. That is what he said. So just first of all, that really, really makes it even more clear why his science fiction novel mentions kind of like this conspiracy of protest and, you know, uh, subterfuge from religious organizations in cahoots with dark forces, because that phrase right there, it, it seems pretty, um, I don't know, hopeless. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, it, it, it kind of, me. well, it's kind of counter to the meaning many of us attribute to life. Yeah. What we know now, I'm going to disagree. Now, maybe he is operating, maybe he's thought so much about this. Maybe he's devoted so much energy to dealing with this, these topics that he's actually able, he's been able to transcend common thinking and he's been able to think in a different way about this. And so I'll leave my mind open to that. However, in current context, I'm going to say the opposite. I'm going to say, that a finite lifespan is, in many cases, what makes your life relevant. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you watch you know, or read many stories about immortality and immortals, what is the thing that almost always comes up? What always comes up, and whether it's a vampire, remember vampires are supposed to be immortal, whatever. The thing that always comes up is, 
oh, I've, you know, I've been going on too long. You know, this, this life has lasted too long and the, the centuries have blended into one another and, you know, yeah, they're bored and they want an end and they feel that by ending their life, their immortal life, somehow they will achieve meaning, you know, and they won't simply float through time, you know, like a piece of debris, you know, as everyone else has kind of like these meaningful life arcs of life and death and things that they did or didn't do or impacts that they did or did or didn't have. So maybe Zoltan has really done some sort of concept, you know, you know, thought experiments in his own, you know, his own mind thinking, far you know far forward from where i you know any of us can think but yeah, that that's my point of view what what how do you digest that like cuz i think naturally the same way that you do like you know the fact that we're we're going to die makes every moment we have a lot more beautiful uh but i think maybe and i can't speak for him but i think maybe what he's saying that by saying that death makes life uh like irrelevant I think he's saying like you work your entire life to achieve something and then you just die. So then if you're just going to die, what's the point of living? And I'm thinking about Ray Kurzweil again, because he, he was saying things like, you know, like I work on all these things. And then, you know, if you just die, you just cut off all this progress. Like what if you're a genius and you are the type of person who just drives forward uh, technological progress and all of all of these things and you're like a Steve Jobs figure and Elon Musk figure and you can just make stuff happen. When those people die, they're always just like, oh, if that person hadn't died, if he had just lived a little longer. I think he's thinking from that standpoint, like what's the point of those people living if they're just going to die? It's also, I guess, inherent in that phrase is the question of is the race, is the process of the race, running of the race, uh, important or is it getting to the finish line, which is important. And I guess what a lot of us believe, whether you're religious or not, I, I'm just, I'll say it up front. I'm not very religious. I'm not sure if there's a, you know, being out there, but I'm open to the possibility. I'm not so certain uh, that I know anything that I rule that out. So I'm not an atheist, but I'm not religious. And I think whether you're religious or not, a lot of us look at this kind of question of, you know, the meaning of life is the living of it, not necessarily the end. Because what do they always say? You can't take it with you. You can't mm -hmm. take the riches with you. So I guess what his turn on that would be is, well, no, yes, you can, you know, build the wealth, build the knowledge, build the accomplishments, and you can then take it with you. But then the question is, to what end? We have countless science fiction stories that tell us the opposite, that tell us that immortality is fraught with peril, fraught with, you know, questions of meaning related to the fact that you didn't get to die, get to yeah. die. Again, the question being, is the race about the running of the race or getting to that end finish line? Um, and again, people like Ray Kurzweil, Zoltan Istvan uh, and others seem to be of the thinking that you know, the, there doesn't have to be a finish line. And, and I think that's the point of departure where most people, even people who like to think of themselves as open-minded, such as myself, and, you know, and, and, you know, read a lot of science fiction and watch science fiction movies. That's where, you know, maybe some of us aren't 
we haven't gone there with them yet. And maybe they've gone somewhere mentally, conceptually, the notion of living forever without an end, you know, constant progress, constant development, constant reinvention. I mean, even now, I mean, we can, I mean, I guess we can try to put it in realistic terms by looking at what's going on now with longer lifespans. You know, you know, it used to be just, you know, four or 500 years ago that if you lived to be 80, you were like some sort of, you know, phenomenon. You were, you were this, you know, yeah, probably some shaman, you know, some, some wise wizard, you know, or witch or something. But now what is it? It's called the average lifespan of an American, of a Japanese person, you know, you know, of many countries, um, 80, 80. So what if that's bumped up to 180, 280, you know, 580, you know, sure. I'm pretty sure that the first person to live to 150 has already been born. Oh no. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. But I mean, at 250, at that point for someone, you know, from a few hundred years ago, you know, from this point, a few, a few hundred years back, that's essentially immortality to them. And so, you know, so on, so on some level, this is a lot of this is perspective and context. And they may just be pushing us to realize the next iteration of ourselves as opposed to necessarily trying to destroy God, which is mm-hmm. what I think. Let's be honest. I think a lot of people will say that people like Zoltan and Ray Kurzweil and anyone who wants to extend life beyond what appears to be its natural end, uh, that these people somehow want to kill God. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I'm definitely not at the point where that sounds attractive or appealing to me, but who knows? I may change my mind in a couple of decades. All right. Well, we'll leave that question with you out there. Uh, again, Zoltan Istvan, you can go to his website at ZoltanIstvan.com. Uh, his, even though the website is dedicated to his presidential campaign, it, it looks like a science fiction website. It, it looks like something from a 1980s science fiction it's novel. An experience. Yeah, it's an experience. Um, so you can go to his website, check him out. Um, Wayward Pines, as we mentioned earlier, it's coming back next week, May 25th. And that is all for this episode of Mars Magazine. We will see you in the future.